He may have rose to fame opposite Tom Cruise in Jerry Maguire, but it was after his role in Stuart Little that Jonathan Lipnicki was cemented as one of the most recognisable young film stars of the late 1990s and early noughties. Instantly, go back and watch Stuart Little again if you've not seen it in a while. It's 84 fun-filled minutes and you get to bop to this song at the end. But I digress. I'm Genevieve and after my guest today fell in love with acting as a child, he's not looked back. You may just not have seen everything he's done since over the past 25 years. So here to talk about his life after that thing he did, please welcome Jonathan Lipnicki. Jonathan, good morning. So lovely to speak with you today. Good morning. Great to speak with you. So I apologize to you and everybody listening. My voice is a little hoarse today, but uh, great to speak with you too. It is very early morning for you. It is literally the crack of dawn in LA. How are you even functioning right now? Well, I usually have a coffee, but I was too uh, lazy to go and make that. So a little bit of Red Bull and a lot of uh, a lot of smiles and a lot of hope. <laughs> I don't know. Are you one of those Mark Wahlberg get up at 4am to exercise type people? Not really. I try to. So naturally, I'm awful at mornings, but I've been more cognizant of really trying to have a better sleep schedule where I get up at the same time every day. Today, I had to get up a little early because I, I have some... <laughs> get to speak to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm back in Los Angeles. Um, I don't live in LA anymore, actually. All right. And I'm uh, I'm back in LA for a few days to to do some stuff for you know related to work. I'm I'm staying in Oklahoma City right now. I've uh, become a little bit of a nomad. Well, I'm very impressed. I used to work an early shift that started at 6:30 a.m. and I don't drink coffee, so I needed a good while before I was firing on all cylinders. And I didn't even have to talk to anyone for the first hour, so <laughs> let alone do an interview. So you're on another level. <laughs> well, good. Uh, excuse me if I sound weird at any point, or you know, I drop the ball in a question. Give me some grace, but uh, I'll give you some slack. Yeah. I think we'll be good. I think we'll be good. Okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. You have so many films with a high nostalgia factor, so we have a bit of ground to cover. But starting at the beginning, you first started acting when you were five years old after your sister did an acting class and you had a go at it because it looked fun, did a few commercials. And then as we all know, you were cast in the brilliant Jerry Maguire opposite Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger as her son, Ray. And I feel like you're to Jerry Maguire as Michael J. Fox was to Back to the Future, where Eric Stoltz was originally cast as Marty McFly, but it didn't work out. So Mike came on board and he was perfect. And that's what happened with you because you weren't originally cast either but perfect for the role that's i really appreciate that reference that's really cool um you know what's funny about that reference in particular is michael j fox i worked with on Stuart little yes and eric stoltz was in jerry Maguire. and eric stoltz was also my dad in an independent film i did called when zachary beaver came to town yeah crispin glover as well oh and crispin glover yeah start opposite you and like mike yeah Everything is connected. That's, uh, it's all connected. That's crazy. I never thought of that. You bringing that up. <laughs> that's funny. I really never put that together to think of. I thought, oh, yeah, I know Eric. And I know about, and then I, I never put all three together, though. Crispin, also super talented. The talented trio there. But uh, I'm honored you compare me to Mike in that. That's great. You know, he's, he's amazing. I love that you were excited to be in Jerry Maguire because Maverick from Top Gun was in it. And Tom Cruise was your favorite actor at the time. Yeah. You know, uh, my, my parents showed me Top Gun 
And I was just so excited to go hang out with Maverick. That was like such a big deal to me. And I would, I would uh, tell Tom, you know, I feel the need, the need for speed. Uh, he knew it. <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, man, if I wasn't a little kid, man, imagine someone pestering him with that. But uh, he, he's, he was amazing. He loved it. You must have been very excited when Maverick came out last year then. <laughs> very excited. Very excited. Tom, obviously, uh, Glenn Powell, who played Hangman, I've known for a little while, and he's a great guy, so I love seeing him do well. You know, um, I'm always happy to see that. I was very excited. I went opening weekend. It's one of those you have to see in a movie theater, I feel like, and uh, I loved it. It was amazing. I appreciate that you were only five at the time, and I certainly don't have many memories from when I was five years old, so I don't expect you to be able to recall making the movie in the same way that perhaps yeah. Tom Cruise would be able to. But of course, it was hugely successful. Apparently, it's the best-selling VHS of all time that wasn't released by Disney. Um, it had five Oscar nominations, a win for Cooper Gooding Jr. You won a number of awards as well for your role, and a bunch of catchphrases were adopted into popular culture, like "Show me the money." You complete me, which me and my husband still say to each other to this day. Uh, and you had me at hello. When was the last time you watched it? And can you objectively enjoy it now as an adult film lover? Because you made it so long ago and the memories are a bit hazy. I uh, I watched it. I think the last time I watched it was the 20th anniversary. I We did some press for that because a Blu-ray came out for it, a special Blu-ray, if I'm remembering correctly. So to re-educate myself on it, I, I had to watch it again. I had to watch Need a refresher. <laughs> for several years. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't really watch my own stuff after I see it. You know, there's actually some stuff, to be honest, that I've done that I haven't seen yet. Um, <laughs> no excuses. But, uh, you know, I haven't seen it in a long time. So that's five or six years, definitely. And I watched that for the purpose of that. But yeah, you know, it's a great, I always tell people it's a great movie, whether I was in it or or not, I would have enjoyed the movie. It's a great movie. I'm also fortunate that was my first introduction to being, you know, on a movie, being on set, because everyone was really wonderful. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't ask for a better first movie experience. So after your breakout role, you had some small screen roles, including on the Jeff Foxworthy show and Dawson's Creek. But on the big screen, you followed it up with, of course, Stuart Little, as you mentioned, and his latest sequel. But uh, again, such a brilliant cast with Gina Davis and Hugh Laurie as your parents. And you were a little bit older then. So do you have more memories of making that movie? I mean, you were still pretty young, but you had the challenge of filming a CGI movie, which I presume is, you know, acting opposite tennis ball on a stick or some sort of equivalent, which even adults struggle with. Yeah. You know, um, so I mean, with both that and um, sorry if I didn't elaborate on that, you know, Jerry Maguire and Stuart Little, it's, it's bits and pieces. And then luckily, you know, being, you know, a child, I had my mom there so she can fill in a lot of the a lot of the blank spaces I may have. <laughs> Stuart Little was another interesting casting situation as um, the studio wasn't sure about hiring me because it was written for someone older than me. And then the director, Rob Minkoff, fought for me. I got a screen test for it. And, um, you know, I ended up getting it. And it was an amazing experience. And now it's more, in a way, more common now. But it's a weird skill set to talk to nothing, really. And mm. then have somebody saying the lines in a complete different direction. Because as a human being, your inclination and your reaction is going to be turning to where the sound's coming from. But, you know, you have to react off something in a completely different direction. and not turn your head to where the sound is. And that's definitely, you know, a skill set within acting. And it was a great experience. You and Gina were great. I always like to say that I was very lucky to grow up on screen with great parental figures. Uh, <laughs> Gina, Hugh Laurie, 
you know, Tom Cruise, uh, Renee Zellweger. So I got very, uh, I got very fortunate with that. And it was, it was a great, it was, you know, a long filming process. And the funny thing about it was CGI, you know, it was definitely like, uh, I don't want to say earlier version because there's stuff that also had CGI, but it was, you know, definitely still kind of early into the CGI. So it, it took a really long time. And it's funny because I filmed it and I kept telling my friends this movie is coming out. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. It's been like a year, year and a half or whatever it took. And, um, it was really beautiful all around. Just the, the world they made for the Stuart Little little universe was was really incredible and really impressive and you know it was a lot of people at the top of their game from the top down really really firing on all cylinders and you know i'm i'm really i'm really proud of that movie it uh i think it really was a, a beautiful story and i think a, a lot of people connected to it and a great experience filming so it was a really important movie for both my growth as a person as an actor and that movie holds a special place in my heart mm. on the cgi uh, I'm a crazy cat lady, mm-hmm. so I have to say Stuart Little has the best cats on film I have ever seen, both both in terms of their talking and general cat acting as well. Usually talking cats, they can't get their mouths moving right. They use bad animatronics, naming no names. Yeah, Nathan and Nathan Lane and Nathan Lane and Steve Zahn, you know, are the voices, and, and that's awesome. But yeah. these cats, still from 1999, are the best cats in film, hands down. That's amazing. Yeah, I haven't watched that one in a long time either. So uh, I'll take your word that it aged well. But, uh, you know, they were definitely there were some real cats there that they animated the mouths, I guess. Like, the cats were really cool. I was really a big fan of the cats. I loved hanging out with them. And then following Stuart Little was the Little Vampire in 2000, your first leading role. And again, an awesome cast for you. Richard E. Grant, Alice Creek, Jim Carver from Downton Abbey. Uh, and filming was delayed twice directly because of you. Can you share why? And it's I'll, all my fault. All my fault. And I'll warn people, if you're slightly squeamish, you might want to prepare yourself. It's uh, it's all my fault. Uh, that was really important to my growth because pressure makes, you know, makes diamonds. And it was a lot of pressure at a young age. It was, you know, my first leading role. And I'm, you know, it's not like my parents put pressure on me, but I, even from a young age, I was pretty hard on myself. I put a lot of pressure on myself. We did get delayed twice. One was injuring my back. So I lost a bit of weight in uh, Germany. I don't know if I was just nervous or the food, you know, there was also a degree of, I've always had a sense of stomach. A lot of food didn't agree with me that I was eating out there. And I lost a lot of weight and I didn't fit into my flying harness properly. You know, we had kept having to readjust for that. And I ended up overextending some parts of my back and my neck. And um, it got really bad. I pulled something and I was out for two, I think two weeks. And that was pretty miserable. And then the other accident was kind of a freak accident. Uh, so my dear dog, rest in peace, Edgar, Edgar Lipnicki, me and him were playing around one day and his mouth was open because he was panting and we were all just playing around. You know, I was like wrestling with him. I was a little kid and my lip went straight into one of his teeth and it cut my lip open completely. Wow. And I had to go and get that sewn up and let that heal. And that was an experience too, because I'm young, I'm going to a surgeon who didn't speak English. We were in Germany. And so I was like, didn't know what was going on. And it was kind of terrifying. Um, we had one of the producers who spoke both German and English go with us. But I was like, I was terrified. It was it was a pretty deep gash. And when I moved my mouth, it would like, sorry if this gross ever, but it would move as well. It would kind of flap open. It was disgusting. You could see it into my lip. My poor buddy, Edgar, he felt so bad. He wouldn't leave my side for weeks on end after that. Aww. Amazing dog. Totally just a weird, weird accident. But um, 
But yeah, it's one of those things that didn't get a lot of love, you know, as much love at the time when it came out. But, you know, when it came out on DVD, VHS and was played, Disney started playing it. Wasn't it was not a Disney movie. It was actually an independent film uh, initially. And it got picked up at the American film market. But it played a lot on there. And, and now I get a lot of love for it when I go to Comic-Cons. People really enjoyed it and really related to it. Uh, you know, I have people come up because my character in that, he's a, he's a loner. And he moves to a different place and has no friends. And I have a lot of people have come and related to that and really resonated with them because they felt alone, you know, as well at that point that they saw that movie and it really um, comforted them. So, you know, that's really cool that it connected to people in that way. So by now you're 10 years old and your films had grossed nearly three quarters of a billion dollars at the box office, which is quite frankly mind-blowing at that age. And then you starred in another hit like Mike opposite Bow Wow uh, and a young Jesse Plemons and Morris Chestnut. Is that where your love of basketball began or was it already there and this just cemented it? My love for basketball was already there before I did like Mike. It just accelerated it. I played a lot of basketball. And that was a really great experience. I worked with this director, John Schultz, who's a great guy. And we originally were meeting about me doing this film when Zachary Beaver came to town. And he wanted to, you know, really gain a great working relationship. And he was kind enough to offer me um, a role in Like Mike. And we shot that. And then we shot when Zachary Beaver came to town the next summer. And it was a great experience working with Bow Wow, working with Jesse. You know, it was my first experience working with people around my age on a consistent basis. And it, it was, it was so fun. It was really fun. And, and more chestnut, amazing, Crispin Glover, really kind guy, probably one of the most fun experiences on set I've ever had. It's great to be around other kids my age. I've watched a lot of interviews with you where you're asked if you stayed in touch with Tom Cruise. And yeah. I always think it's such a strange question because you were five at the time and what typical yeah. adult would be like, yeah, I get this kid's number and be his friend forever. But, yeah. but you actually did. So my question for you is, and I'm a bit afraid to ask it in case the answer is no and causes some emotional distress, but are you the recipient of one of the famous Tom Cruise Christmas cakes? I actually, I don't remember as far as being a kid. I'm, I'm not anymore. And like, it's, it's funny how people take like, something you say and they sometimes like interviews are like press operates in an extreme where it's like oh yeah like keep touch with him but they're like you know it makes it seem like you know, we're like best friends and I wouldn't <laughs> want to put that on him either he's, 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 he's been so wonderful to me um actually I did audition for Maverick because of Tom oh right. yeah so I uh originally wasn't you know a choice to be seen by casting um you know they have they have specific choices nothing personal they they look you know they have to do what they have to do. They have, they have specific people they might have in mind. And they were lo really lovely when I did uh, come in. But uh, I asked Tom because, you know, initially it was hard getting in the room um, if he thought I was right for it. And then, you know, he actually answered me on the day the last Mission Impossible came out. He, he emailed me. He answered me and he's like, I do think you're right for it. I talked to Joe Kosinski, the director. Um, you can have an audition for it. So I auditioned for multiple roles in it. You get kind of, you know, it's a big production. So you get those dummy sides. So you don't really know who you're necessarily reading for. But I read for four different roles in that. And, um, you know, didn't go my way, but that's acting. Mm. But he's always been extremely supportive and uh, really fortunate that we've had enough of a relationship where when I needed advice when I was 20, he was there. You know, not everyone you reach out to is going to be as gracious and as kind and give you their time. And he really is something else. He's an extraordinary person. 
Does that mean you do get a Christmas cake every year? I uh, know I don't get a Christmas cake every year. I'm also, you don't I'm, get the Christmas I'm, cake. I'm, also, I'm Jewish too, so oh, maybe so he's just trying to respect oh. my religion. So I don't celebrate Christmas anyway. Oh, does he give you a birthday cake? No, no, no. <laughs> you need to get something out of him. <laughs> I'm watching. I'm watching my figure. You can. I, I will not. If he wants to send me something, uh, a birthday cake might not be it. But uh, but you know he's done far enough for me, and I appreciate him. Um, you know, in a very special way. Uh, if you get a cake, or maybe in your place, maybe I could get the cake instead. I love white chocolate and coconut. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, good so word I'll, in for me. <laughs> I'll, I'll forward it to you. Yeah. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter the latid zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener thank you for hitting that play button again and if this is your first time welcome you have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on so if you haven't already please do follow and subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show stick around at the end to find out how now back to the latid zone If we pick up at 2004 to 2010, you didn't work too much professionally during that time with just a handful of credits. But since 2010, you've worked consistently every year, either on stage or on screen. But that seven year period in between wasn't the easiest for you, was it? Uh, no, it's funny. It got taken out of context a little when I explained this a few months ago. And actually, funny, I've been saying it for a long time, but sometimes things pick up. And so there was a fair amount of press because I, I talked about how I didn't get a lot of roles during that period because I, I wasn't very good at acting. And what I mean by that, um, to be very specific, is they ended up saying in the interviews when I said a little blurb about it, oh, he quit acting. I never quit acting. I was still auditioning. Just not it wasn't my only focus. I was going to high school, especially, um, you know, was really interested in playing water polo. So I played water polo. I had a very um, normal time for high school. I mean, I went to public school, elementary, middle and high school, but high school you know, it was the most consistent that I was in class. And um, it was a very normal experience on the acting front. I didn't quit at all. I still auditioned, you know, when it when it came up, I was a very awkward age. So there's not, you know, a tremendous amount for kids that age in general, you know, when you get in that like tween preteenish house, it looked very young. So um, it's not like I played the 18 and above roles or anything like that. You know, even at 16, I didn't look 16. So besides that, what the real crux of the situation was, was I wasn't a good actor. And what I mean by that was I didn't love myself. When I visualize anything, I want to be anybody in the world but me at that point. I, I didn't like who I was. I had some difficulties in school. I wasn't confident in who I was. And much like any kid going through puberty, like I felt awful, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was really uh, awkward and not confident. And when that happens as an actor, you lose the most important thing sometime. And that's being, you know, bringing yourself to the role. So I admired these people like Leo and Johnny Depp back then. And, and, and you know, those, those are the people I was looking up to. I would almost imitate other actors because I thought it was like I wanted to be them doing it. And when you are imitating or, or not, you know, actually having something truthfully come from you, then you lose what is extremely special about yourself and about acting. So I wasn't a good actor. I was just not good. And what happened after 2010 was acting class, going to a beginning acting class, really taking it from the beginning. I knew, you know, I got by a lot on, on not doing um, really any classes for, for several years. And I knew there was at some point, you know, in the transition I was making, I knew, I knew classes and really being able to marry that natural talent with 
the skill set was important. And I became uh, really studious at, at ATN. I decided to not go to college after I didn't get into the film school I wanted. I was like, you know, let me see what happens with acting for the next year and see, you know, um, see, see what happens. And at the end of the year, uh, after studying really hard in acting class, I booked a movie and I was like, I think this is a sign to keep doing it. And um, I've been doing it consistently since then through thick and thin. And um, it's been a wonderful, scary, sad, happy, crazy, boring, exciting, you know, experience. You know, it's, it's you really run the full gamut of emotions when you're in an industry where you don't have a lot of control over what happens. And people are like, oh, what's your dream role or that? And, you know, I, I have several things that would be a dream role. I, I don't have control over that. I'm still you know, very much like most actors, 99% of them re- reading for roles, auditioning and getting what I, I book, mm. you know, and, and it's been, it's been a wild experience, but I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Mm. So on the theatre front, as you said, you started studying theatre, discovered a new love for it. Yeah. And your first theatre job was understudying two roles in Martin McDonough's Lieutenant of Inishmore, yeah. Lieutenant, as we say in England, uh, which Chris Pine was in. And you followed that up a couple of years later with a five-month run of the play Lost Girls, which earned you a rave review in the LA Times. That must have been so gratifying at that point of your career when you're trying to transition from a young actor to an adult actor. It's funny you bring that up because that's the only thing I own as far as like memorabilia, especially like I, over the years, I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. And the one thing I kept proudly in my house was a copy of that play with, with some reviews to remind myself that if you work really hard at something, you know, there'll be some great results. In this uh, instance, there was definitely some validation with reviews, but it meant, it meant a lot to me. Um, You know, being a, a bit of a theater nerd, I got to be in the actual like you know, printed version of it got published. And so, you know, in the part in the beginning of all little playbooks, it says originated by the characters. And I got to be the original person in the cast. So that was amazing. And uh, it meant a lot to me because I worked very hard on that role. I worked with some really talented people. And I knew, you know what, if I don't really work hard, I don't want to be the weakest link in a brilliant cast. I want to be able to really bring a lot of truth to this role. And yeah, you're right. It was a very gratifying experience because doing something for five months, you're going to have to perform at the same level, whether you had a really good day or a really bad day. Eight times a week. <laughs> exactly. So it gave me, you know, a lot of experience with that and having to bring it, whether it was a good day or bad day. I got to work with Josh Baton, who I worked with on For the Love of Money. I put the younger version of him on that, with the younger version of him in this play. And he became a huge mentor to me, as well as my acting coach. And, uh, you know, one of the acting coaches I've worked with, I've worked with some great acting coaches. So shout out to all that. Josh Baton, Holly Garnier, uh, you know, uh, Eric Edwards, uh, Robert Carney, keep trying to say their names. <laughs> don't forget anyone. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't want to forget people who help me. But, um, but yeah, doing something for five months. And it was amazing, uh, amazing writing. John Polono, who wrote um, Stronger, the movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, wrote the play. And he's so brilliant. So Working with amazing material, working with some people became my dear friends for five months. One of the best transformational experiences for me going to the next level as an actor. And I'll always look at that as a turning point for myself. Mm. You had laser eye surgery when you were 18. Yeah. I'm super blind and I would love to have it, but I was told my corneas are too thin, so I'm not a viable candidate. Yeah. But, um, but as an actor known for wearing glasses and being part of your image, I guess, that's an interesting decision. Were you consciously trying to move away from that? 
No, I just really wanted, I didn't really want to move away from anything. I just really wanted to see. And, you know, being the person I am, I'm very active. I grew up like constantly breaking glasses. I tried contact lenses, didn't like them at all, but I would always break my glasses. And I do a lot of different activities like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And, you know, it's, it just was like just a a smart decision for me and my vision. Uh, (laughs) So I really had nothing to do with my career and everything to do with my vision. I, I, you know, glasses were great. I really needed them at that point, you know, when I was younger. And so, uh, but yeah, I, I think that it shouldn't matter if I have glasses and mustache, I should just, you know, really focus on what I can control as far as being the best uh, at my craft that I can be. So it wasn't really a decision about career as much as, you know, being able to see what's in front of me, literally. <laughs> <laughs> you've been um, you've been open about your experience battling anxiety and depression from a young age. Mm. I think you've, you said that you had your first panic attack when you were eight. Mm. Uh, and you've been a strong advocate of talking about mental health and you've supported the Child Mind Institute. And I find it interesting because as a career, there's a lot of rejection in acting is that more difficult to negotiate if you have anxiety and how do you develop the mental resilience you need to cope with it because i think i saw somewhere that you actually enjoy auditioning okay so funny funny thing about that um i don't know how it's like to pursue a career without anxiety without having anxiety <laughs> i think a lot of actors because we're creatives because you know we we are sensitive that a lot of the actors i know have pretty bad anxiety but um, <laughs> I don't know pursuing it otherwise, so I can tell you, but it is that, you know, definitely it could be a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very crazy career for anybody who's sensitive because Monday you could be like, why am I not working? It's, what am I doing with my life? And then Tuesday you find out you book an incredible role and <laughs> you're, everything completely changes for you. So it's, uh, I think managing, uh, up, uh, highs and lows like that, regardless of anxiety and whatnot is, is very it's very difficult and um, taught me a lot about myself and being resilient. And so that's been uh, that's been an experience. Uh, my anxiety has gotten a lot better, um, which is great. Uh, I've worked on it diligently. I think it's one of those things where, you know, you can sit around and be like, I'm anxious and do nothing about it. And but you, what I realized is you got to validate that it's there and be like, OK, I'm anxious, but also be proactive in your own happiness therapy, finding, you know, whatever works for you. Uh, I always say dive into your passions because that helps with any sort of mental health. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to be proactive in your happiness. Yeah, I do enjoy, enjoy auditioning. That wasn't always the case. There were years where I was nervous, so nervous to do it. And still that comes up. I'm still on that journey. I'm really embracing my own nerves because I, when you love something so much, that resistance comes up. But I love actually the world of self-tape auditions since the pandemic because I get to put my best take out there and I get to really take a big swing at it. So I do love it because if you treat it like every time you audition, you get to act, you get the privilege of acting. If you treat it like that, then auditioning is really fun because you don't like auditioning. Then maybe this isn't the right line of work for you because it's a huge part of it. And um, might as well enjoy every experience to dive into a character that I possibly can. You've also been honest about how your success so young and being one of the most beloved and recognizable young actors of the late. 90s and early noughties has been both a help and a hindrance in your career. It's opened some doors, but also closed some others. And in terms of public perception as well, I feel like there's two camps of people, kids who grew up watching your films and have all the nostalgic affection as as your peers, and adults who watched you at a time where their memory of you is a child, and they don't want to accept that you've grown up. 25 years later, because it means they've gotten old. And I wonder if as time moves on, or as time has moved on, 
the casting directors, producers or, or decision makers in the industry now are of an age where they see you in that affectionate way and not tie you with the child actor brush older people may have done to give you opportunities now that you may not have had before. That's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I completely have no control over that. So I, I try not to focus on that. Um, life is hard. Let's be honest. You know, I believe in being completely honest. My career is not where I want it to be. And that is fine because it's about growth. And it wouldn't be very interesting if I had all these roles as a kid and it just was like one linear growth and it just everything for the rest of my life was completely, you know, uh, thrown my way as far as the roles I wanted. It's been something that I believe is a test from the universe, a test from God for me to rise to the occasion. And I'm working on rising to the occasion and I will rise to the occasion. And for me, the best is yet to come. I know it in my heart. Promise you that we're going to one day we'll have another another celebrity catch up and you're going to be like, hey, Jonathan, you you called it. But, yeah, I work I work really hard and I know I'm very good at this. And uh, because I've worked hard at it, not because it all came naturally. And I'm excited for the roles that are going to come up. I uh, can't really control what people think or perception. I mean, I'm sure perception is that my career isn't where it used to be. And people will attribute that to child acting, whatever they want to attribute to. Biggest lesson I've learned and I keep relearning is not to care what others think about me and to just focus on being the best human being I can possibly be, the kindest human being I can possibly be, grow as a human being and, you know, be studious about my craft. And it will come back around because when preparation meets opportunity, you know, is when truly some amazing things happen. So, you know, seeing definitely like uh, Ki Kwan and, and Brendan Fraser and, and things like that, you see that if you are studious about it, if you care, if you give a damn, if you practice your shit, stuff will come back around. And I'm, I'm confident mine will. Who knows when? But I, all I have control over is me. And um, what others may think can hurt. So as I grow older, I, I, uh, I focus less on that. And regardless of having a thick skin because of auditioning, you know, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts, you know, if, if people say things that are not nice or what things that are not great about where you are versus where you've been. But I can't really control that. So, um, And I do, I do actually, I feel frustrated on your behalf because, yeah. you know, everyone has a different, it sounds cliche, everyone has a different journey. And also, say we've said, you, you've been consistently working for like since, since yeah. 2010 and not everyone has seen every film or every TV show that has ever been made to know that you were in them all. So I, I feel frustrated for you on their path, but I appreciate that. <laughs> it must be encouraging and inspiring to see, as you mentioned, Kihi Kwan and Brendan Fraser have this like renaissance in their later career. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, yeah, it can be frustrating. Totally. You know, I'm not going to lie and say, you know, you know, I'm not Buddha. I can be impatient. I can be very impatient. But also uh, at the end of the day, I'm very, I'm very excited for where, you know, I'm trying to live in the moment. But I'm also very excited for the future. I have, you know, stuff coming up. That's great. But hey, you know, you do what you have to do as a working actor. I've done some movies that are not good, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, it's like being a musical artist. You, you, you're going to drop some albums that are bangers that everybody sees or listens to, and you're going to drop some stuff that nobody does. But whether I'm performing in front of a lot of people or it's a movie that a lot of people see or it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the fact that I love doing it. And even in the moments where I wasn't working with the best material or the best scripts or the best, no one goes into a movie not wanting to make a good movie. Sometimes it just happens. And I've had movies that I was worried about them when they came out and they turned out being really good. And there's some movies I was like, this is going to be amazing. And it didn't turn out so well. So 
once again, uh, let go, give control to, uh, to God, to the universe, whatever you believe in, give control to that, you know, uh, let go and just focus on what you can focus on. But I'm excited for this stuff to come. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be really fun. Let's talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as you mentioned it earlier, which was something yeah. that you also started when you were five years old, gave up, then rediscovered it in high school, age 15, 16. And after 14 years of grappling, just before COVID, you got your black belt. Congratulations. And considering, Thank you so much. considering less than 1% of people that do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu achieve that level, it's such a massive achievement. How much of that mental discipline that you need for martial arts has defined you as a person today? You can't hide on the mats. You know, they tell the truth and, and I've gotten the shit beat out of me a lot of times. You, in martial arts, you, you you become a more resilient person. You know, I started training when I was in high school and most of my uh, training partners were adults who were bigger than me. And I, I they were amazing. And I, I really am happy I got the shit beat out of me because it made me a stronger person. And uh, it, you're continually going to come across people who are better than you, regardless of how good you get. Unless you are literally that best person in the world, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to come across that. And even then they lose. So it's given me uh, a lot of resilience. It's made me a more creative person. It's a creative art. I've met some of the most incredible people through it. It's kept me grounded. It's also built my confidence at the same time. So, you know, it's been uh, a very important part of my life. And you know, I actually haven't trained recently. Um, I've had a lot go on in my life. Um, I've been trained recently, no excuses. So it's a good reminder for me to get back to that because that brings me a lot of happiness. I did a few classes when I was 23, but I'm afraid I couldn't sacrifice my, my fingernails. Oh, yeah. Same reason I couldn't get on with guitar. But uh, possibly controversial question, yeah. gi or no gi? No gi, all the way. <laughs> uh, I like no gi because no one who's just bigger and stronger can like make it more difficult on you by like holding on to your clothing. For people who don't know, gi is with the kimono. No gi is like athletic gear, like, you know, um, what we call it, Under Armour, like rash guards. So I like no gi a lot better. For me, it's just something, it matches my game better. I'm a big no-gi fan, so great question, though. I'm glad somebody asked it. <laughs> big no-gi guy over here. <laughs> I love that a couple of years ago, you were part of a volunteer group made up of MMA fighters and boxers, the Shava Angels, which was set up during a time when there was a lot of anti-Semitic hate and attacks on the Jewish community in LA, and you escorted people to and from synagogue and mm. maintained a presence in the area to deter people from committing further attacks. It's so lovely. Oh, thanks. Um, when you get the opportunity to do the right thing, you know, it's up to you to choose to do it. And one of my good friends, Remy Franklin, hit me up with this idea about doing this. And we knew we know a lot of people through uh, martial arts who who were very down to do it. You know, it's something that's needed, not just then, but now. Um, Anti-Semitism, we've seen with Kanye West, we've seen with a lot of people. If you don't notice it, you might be turning a blind eye to it or you're not really paying attention because it's really bad right now. And I'm not saying you, I'm saying you as the, the viewer, mm. uh, not, not you individually, but it's really, it's really bad right now. There's some um, really sad, horrible things going on with the Jewish community. And I always say uh, you have to fight against all types of hate and anti-Semitism, much like, you know, certain groups that don't get as much, um, as much attention to their causes. Some, some causes get some more attention than others. And anti-Semitism, I think, is one that doesn't get as much coverage as you know it should for what's going on or i feel like it's not really taken seriously and i feel for different groups of people different communities that don't get that attention because i've seen 
you know, what it looks like with anti-Semitism. I know a lot of other groups and types of people are, are, are hated and, and, and discriminated against. And it, it, we need to give all we need to save all our attention for everybody, regardless of who the hate is against. Be against all hate. Mm. And, you know, it's been really unfortunate. But a lot of my friends who post about other causes, every other cause, it feels like just never post about anti-Semitism. There's a weird thing there. And it's very near and dear to my heart. And I, I, I love all the my brothers and, and sisters that we did that volunteer work together. And it's much needed now. And we need to come together as people. You know, um, there's more of us that would stand against all types of hate than, than the people who you know are hateful. So Definitely. I, I hope that it gets more um, attention. I, I really do. You spent a bit of time over on this side of the pond in 2017-18 where you appeared on Celebs Go Dating, which for anyone unfamiliar is a show where celebrities are set up on dates with non-celebrities in the hope of finding love. How did you find that experience? And I don't know if you'd like to say a few words about your fellow co-star, Mike Thalassitis, who we sadly lost in 2019. It must be heartbreaking to lose a friend, especially as an advocate for mental health issues. I will, um, you know, I'm going to start with the whole thing with Mike. He was really, really, really sweet filming that. You know, we we didn't get to get as close as, you know, I probably would have liked. I think he's an incredible guy or was an incredible guy and um, misunderstood. He had this character, Muggy Mike, that was, you know, it, it was what it was. It was a persona. But under that, he was a very sweet person who cared a lot about the people around him. And it was extremely sad to hear that because he was a light in this world and he had a lot to offer and is gone far too soon. I My condolences to his whole family because he was a really bright light in this world and not everyone got to see who he truly was, which is the saddest part to me. He was a very sweet guy and um, persona and like being famous for being Muggy Mike, you know, that didn't really speak to who he truly was as a person. And, and you know, it was really sad to see the experience shooting. It was great. It was really fun. I, uh, I took a risk on that <laughs> doing something unscripted. Like that's not something I really thought saw myself doing, but I was in a certain place in my life where I, I wanted to travel and I wanted to try a new experience and um, and see what British girls had to offer. Yeah, um, it, it was more so just just getting out there and, and, and just taking a little bit of a risk. You know, um, we talk about perception, but what I realized is, you know, the people judging me aren't, aren't living the life I'm living or having to make the decisions mm. that I make because I know there's still some judgment around unscripted reality, stuff like that. But it was a good experience for me to get out of my comfort zone, most importantly, and uh, have to really move past. There was a lot of anxiety going into that and move past that. And I think I grew a lot because of it. And I met some really sweet people who were very, very nice to me and kind to me. Still keep up with Ollie Locke here and there. And he's a great guy. So overall, a really good experience. Scary. There were some good parts of it. There were some bad parts of it. And uh, it's definitely it's definitely part of my past now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely an experience. So I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm still wrapping my head around doing something so crazy. But uh, it was it was definitely definitely an experience that I'm grateful for. You then participated in the Food Network show Worst Cooks in America, which set you up nicely for your role in horror film Broil, where you played a chef hired to kill a family patriarch. Not that Worst Cooks in America trained you how to kill people with your cooking. But um, if we turn to other recent and current projects, you had a podcast, Comeback Kids, you've written a pilot, started leading acting workshops, and you've just finished a couple of films, horror movie Camp Pleasant and a comedy The Reeducation of Molly Singer. But I wanted to give a special mention to a short film you made recently, date which is linked on your instagram and everyone should watch it it's great it's just eight minutes long but so topical right now and probably is something that should be shown in every school to start conversations around consent 
Yeah, that was one of the uh, date, uh, the film I made written by Teresa Rebeck, who uh, created the show Smash. She's one of the best playwrights in the world. I'm a huge fan of her. And so I had the chance to work with her. This was something I put together because I wanted to do something I was really passionate about. And so my good friend, Andrew Carlberg, who has been nominated for two Oscars, won one for uh, shorts. He was kind enough to collaborate with me on this and put my own money into financing it, which was scary to do. I put it on a credit card and was like, I don't know, I'm going to pay this back, <laughs> but I will. I will pay it back. And then a week before filming, I got Worst Cooks and that paid for my short. So cool. you do one for them, you do one for yourself. Or whatever. <laughs> uh, no, but the, the, definitely the, the Worst Cooks experience, I wouldn't trade for the world as well. That was amazing. You know, I take uh, the skill set that I learned from that to my uh, kitchen nowadays. Yeah. So the short, it, it, it was really scary to make because of judgment once again. And, you know, I didn't want the it to look like we were taking the side of any particular person in that because, you know, it's a really scary situation. And in human interaction, there's a lot of gray area and that can be really scary. And that's why communication is key. And so I, uh, hey, I, you know, listening to this, I, I hope you check it out. Uh, whoever's listening, it's some some work I'm very proud of. I'm so glad you saw it. So thank you for doing your research. It means a lot to me. I put a lot into that and it caused me a great deal of anxiety releasing something so uh, controversial and something so mm. needed and something so scary. But it was a great experience. And I'm, I'm so proud of that little short. I'd like to take a moment to talk about Denny, your dog, who you sadly lost in November. And it's a cliche to say dogs are a man's best friend. But as you spent almost half your life with him, he really was yours. Yeah. Uh, Denny, I lost Denny. He was 15 years old. He was there through great times and through some horrible times. And he was really a constant in my life. And he gave me far more than I could ever give him. And um, I miss him so much. And it was it hit on a lot of different levels because he's a reminder of my tail end of high school, first moving out, all the times that I failed as 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 an actor, maybe as a person as well. And, you know, brought up a lot of that, brought up a lot of uh, sadness, uh, not just losing my best friend, but having someone be there for you when no one else is. And I felt very alone in this world a lot of my life in uh he was someone who was always there for me. And so thank you for acknowledging him because animals are incredible, incredible, incredible creatures that we can learn from, especially dogs. And I'm a better person today because of having Denny. And through the worst times, through the highs, through the lows, Denny was always there and didn't care how much work I booked. He uh, just cared about how many naps he got with me in a uh, day. Uh, but yeah, um, I miss him dearly. I miss him. I miss him dearly. And I, I, I love him very much. And I hope he's enjoying himself up there. <laughs> what a what a credible experience to be a, a dog dad. And hopefully one day I'll feel ready to do that again. But for right now, I'm honoring honoring his memory. R.I.P. Denny. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I love your attitude to life now. You say, you know, you said you live in the moment. You don't live in a place of if, only in a place of when. And the best is yet to come. It's such a positive outlook for someone in your industry and with mental health struggles too. Where does that come from? Um, being really low, I think, at times in my life and realizing it's not worth it and trying to master myself as far as really trying to improve as a human being. And I think it comes from learning to not take things personally. People aren't out to get you or sabotage your career. In most cases, probably 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not to take things personally. People aren't out to get you. And 
You know, I'd rather live my whole life and let's say the world ended tomorrow. At least I live enjoying the moment and, and, and having hopes and dreams for the future rather than being dreading it or why don't things happen for me? I've been on both sides of it. I'm not going to lie. I've been very low before and I, I choose to look at things in a more positive way because every time I've been extremely low, God has come through for me and uh, shown me the way and, and given me an experience that turn things around for me. So I think it's an important choice to make. And it seems easier said than done. You know, a lot of people have really, really rough upbringings or, or rough circumstances. And it's it's easier said than done. But but if you work hard at it, like you'll find that and it's not constant. You constantly have to work out. It's like going to the gym, mental health. You don't do one curl and boom, you have big biceps. You have to continuously work on yourself. And I'm so early in that journey. Um, but thank you. I appreciate that. And it's, you know, some days, of course, I'm going to feel awful. And I'm not going to love where I'm at, but it's my work to be proactive and in, in being happy and still having that outlook, despite what might be happening around me. Mm. Last question. Can you please explain why your role on Dawson's Creek made you the best brother in the world? Oh, haha. what a funny thing to end on. Um, my sister was a huge Dawson's Creek fan. So I, got, I have this audition come in for Dawson's Creek and she's like, if you really love me, I'll book it. <laughs> and I did. I did. I got it. I got the role. And on Valentine's Day, she had a huge crush on Joshua Jackson, which I proudly let him know. <laughs> he gave her a hug on Valentine's Day, and she always remembers that. Shout out to Josh. Great guy. And uh, I was the best brother in the world because she got to meet her biggest crush, Joshua Jackson. And I bet you don't let her forget it either, do you? <laughs> no, never, never, <laughs> never, never let her forget it. <laughs> Jonathan, it's been so lovely talking with you. I know you turned down a lot of interviews because it can feel a bit like Groundhog Day talking about the early days of your career a lot. So I'm really grateful you've given me the time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing your research and keeping it interesting. I really, truly appreciate it and appreciate you. And, and I've had a good time and I hope anyone listening... Uh, I hope it was worth listening to. Huge thanks again to Jonathan for joining me for such an honest chat. Do go and watch his short film Date, which is linked on his Instagram. You can find him at Jonathan Lipnicki. You can also check out his podcast, Come Back Kids, and do keep your eyes peeled for a couple of Jonathan's new movies coming out soon. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. It's always nice to get a five-star review and also people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. So do that if you fancy. And please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen too. Just search for Celebrity Catch-Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.